Well, how many of you guys read uh, Joan of Arc? Hey, all right. Well, today is um, going to be, a, I, I think it will be interesting. One of the things that I've struggled with as I read the entire chat, all these chapters, is that the, the story that's told is always a, it's always very inspiring, you know, and and this this chapter, in, in, insofar as, yes, we read about their struggles and their achievements and their faithfulness, but yet, on a certain level, it does seem still very kind of, there's a gap between this, their stories and us. So, um, I, uh, well, this chapter is kind of a peculiar, too, because, um, so I always have this question, like, how are we supposed to feel about this? Like, how, how, what are we going to, how are we going to relate to these women? Obviously, it's very difficult for me to relate to a woman because I'm a man. Uh, but on top of that, though, as Christians, too. So this chapter, unlike the others we've read, involves a great injustice to the main character. Where uh, the ones we, well, the ones I've taught and the ones I've read have always been... Um, women who are wealthy have given up their wealth in order to follow Jesus, or women of notoriety, notoriety, thank you, have, um, you know, taken on a vow of chastity and then become a nun, and then subsequently. So they have um, done these noble and Christ-centered acts, but here now, St. Joan of Arc, her faith is carried out precisely in the midst of suffering because of injustice. So her witness to Jesus isn't, isn't to justice directly, like giving up money in order to care for the poor, but her witness is about suffering through injustice. So there is, it's kind of a tragic story. So this chapter is sort of inspiring. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of inspiring, but I feel like it's a way that's sanitized. And we'll get to maybe the counterpart, counterpart to that. Uh, it's, while it's inspiring in a, in, a, in a sanitized way, it's also true, don't get me wrong, but I wonder if, it's un, if it isn't unsettling and, I would say, unrealistic. So the chapter, while it's true, on a certain level, is unrealistic for 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 us. But so how do we deal with that? Like how how do we kind of rectify that? And I think a lot of times though is that that's how we approach a lot of stories in scripture. We have these especially with like characters in the Old Testament, they seem like these noble people and like King David is all-inspiring or even Jacob. And yet our memory for some reason doesn't remember the fact that these people are real people and have a lot of strange you know, characteristics. I mean, Jacob, he's a strange person. I I can't read the story of Jacob and get past a lot of the these strange things that happen. So I don't think Joan is strange as much as her story is retold in a way that's very easy to swallow. So I actually have a couple pictures here. This is from, like, World War I. Uh, these pictures are posters so one on the left there is St. Jones taking care of Wilhelm Kaiser. Oh, isn't she wonderful? 
I know it's hard to see because it's black and white, but Kaiser there is on the lower right-hand side, and she's. This was after the bombing of uh, the cathedral in. Uh, ah, jeepers! I can't remember. Off the top of my head. Well, St. Joan is a, and I think the Pope makes mention of that, you know, this is a national hero for, the, for France. I mean, she is such a huge deal. What's funny, though, is on the right side, women of America, save your country, buy war saving stamps. And uh, you, can't, you can't really see that, but it says Saint jo- or, uh, Joan of Arc saved France. Women of America, save your country. Isn't that great? Well, this is this is I know like okay, so you're gonna save your country by buying buying uh, war saving stamps. Um, that's like when uh, you watch the news after this would have been about ten years ago when, well, I might be a little too cynical here. After uh, the attacks on on New York City, you heard this during Christmas time. Don't let the terrorists win. Go by. You know, don't let them screw up our country. Keep spending, Keep spending your money. I'm like, that has what? That has nothing to do with anything. Um, so similar to this, this poster, I thought the same thing. I'm like, what? Uh, and then I think the great one, though, is on the right side. It's Joan of Arc, Saved France, Women of Britain. Does it, you guys knew, right, who, who, who was Joan fighting against? The British. So that's like, yeah, that's kind of a funny thing. So... So what's interesting here is that as we as we retell these stories, we have a, we have a tendency sometimes to sanitize them so that we can relate to them in a way that actually serves a different purpose than perhaps what this person actually lived for. I mean, I, I would venture to say that Saint Joan of Arc would be offended by these posters. Um, it's very, it's very well, and not only that, she was a young girl. She was a teenager. So on top of that, so it's it's very peculiar. She was, I think, she was unusual in in the awe-inspiring sense. That's why I think a lot of people, when she was uh, burned at the stake, I mean, there was a lot of people crying out, you know, to save her. Um, there actually was a riot. You know, people actually literally tried to save her from the stake, and the soldiers who were, you know, kind of crowd control ended up, like, massacring several people, lots of people. So she she was so unusual that um, it's really hard. I don't know what would be the modern-day counterpart because the thing is, though, too, is that I think as oftentimes when we say, uh, kind of understand Joan of Arc, we do understand that in the terms of um, gender roles. And I think her story is so beyond that. Um, and that's why I think even even men are inspired by her. It's not because she was breaking gender roles and being a soldier. It was that she was a living testimony to to Jesus. Because of the, the, she literally suffered through this injustice. She was this woman who was faithful, and yet um, a leader that people were following. 
and she was arrested and tried under false pretenses. I mean, she was an innocent woman. She was innocent, and yet she was uh, murdered. Yeah, no, her crimes, her crimes were uh, heresy. You know, it used to be called like witchcraft. But she had these visions that she was sent by God to liberate France. And what happened was the those those who well that's another thing too. Back then, kings were not only political leaders but also spiritual leaders at the t- same time. So her allegiance to to King Charles, or who ended up being Charles, was not only a a, a national allegiance, but it also was a a, a, a faithful allegiance, so one of faith too. So, um, so she gets arrested in France, but she gets arrested by people who are sympathetic towards British rule, and thus she's put into trial by people who. This is how the story is retold who have allegiances to Britain. But it's on French soil, which I should go back to another thing. The Hundred Years' War between Britain and France. King Henry, uh, Henry V, you know, he's the famous one who, you know, gave St. Crispin's speech in the Shakespearean play. The Band of Brothers. It's a great speech. Anyways, um, that's this is the same war, but... His is a little later than uh, Joan of Arc. So, um, or his, yeah, his uh, story, I guess. So I guess that's a historical background, and I was supposed to say that right away. Hence, I asked how many people read it, because I don't know if everyone knows kind of the historical context. So she did do something quite extraordinary, historically speaking, but I I do believe the, the moment that is probably most interesting is her trial. And condemnation. One of the great things is that we actually have a, a reliable historical record of the trials. They wrote down everything, questions, answers, and then these came out. And obviously, when they came out, people did see that the trial was essentially rigged. And she, in her testimony, was fascinating how she answered questions. Um, so, like for instance she had this vision that St. Michael came to her and talked to her about liberating France. These religious leaders, and they were political and religious leaders, this tribunal, asked, well, what did St. Michael look like? Did he have long hair? And she would say, well, why would he have need to cut it? So he didn't really, she didn't really answer the question. Did he wear clothes? Do you think God was unable to give him clothes? Uh, was he a man or a woman? Like, you know, because, you know, and um, and then she, you know, there's other times where she wouldn't answer any questions. She would remain silent. Um, she proved to be quite a difficult defendant for the tribunal because they couldn't get anywhere with her. And even when they applied force, things still didn't go the way they anticipated. Now, the trial and the condemnation is over, like, a long period of time. So when you tell the story, it seems like it's like, you know, just like a normal court case, but this is actually a long time. Um, eventually she does write this thing saying, I was, I made all this stuff up. But then she recants that confession because after, you know, months and months of torture, she kind of just gave up. 
but in a moment of, of crisis, she said she, you know, she was wrong. She she lied about lying basically, and uh, she needs to recant that. And then that's when they just the moment she does that, she goes right to the stake. I mean, she's burned directly. It's uh, literally from recant. Yeah. Yeah, well, both. But I, th I, think it's, I think it's really just a political trial under the guise of a spiritual issue because she was saying things that were considered very heretical. Like God had made promises to her that were utterly unique to anybody else. So, and the way the church at that time interpreted it was she was living Christianity apart from the church. So if God promised you salvation... What need do you have of the church? And obviously, that you can't you can't do that. Right. But this is exactly though. This this is where I was getting at is that now. It, it, so as we read the story in the the book, we, yeah, okay, yeah, we can kind of take it in. Oh, it's very sad, you know, but. But the thing is, though, as you slow down and you start looking at these things, then you realize this is a very complicated situation here. Like if she came in here and said, you know, she was... Again, we're talking somebody who's already kind of outside the bounds of normal societal boundaries, right? You know, she's a teenage girl claiming to be, to, to be able to be a warrior and then have these spiritual revelations. How do we react to that? I mean, it, it's something where... You think about it now today, right? What if a modern-day prophet arose amongst the church? How would we be able to recognize that? Donna? No, well, she was burned at the stake. Then what happened, though, is that the France ended up getting hold of these trials, and then the, the following pope ended up saying that the trial was null and void. And then subsequently, she was beatified, and then in 1920, she was she made a, she was made a saint. So yeah, some did, some did not. That's the thing. Is that exactly? There's people who agreed with her, people who hated her, and the people who hated her were the ones who got their hands on her last and killed her. And, and well, no, yes and no, right. That, this is where the Pope says, the Pope says very, something very interesting. The church is always hol, holy, but always um, needing, oh boy, uh, refinement. Or, you know, it's, it's this really interesting thing that sounds kind of Lutheran. But, so the, the whole point is that the Pope says, yeah, the church did something bad, but it was just carried out by bad people, not the church officially. Right. He, he said they, they were rogue. Well, maybe that's not the right way to say it. They, they were unfaithful bishops and priests and professors who were carrying out this in the name of God, but yet it was really about Britain. <laughs> well, that's that's where we, that's where it comes back to the point where I talked about before. Is like how how do we how do we start relating to these these women now? Where the church says. This is a uh, very saintly woman, and pious, and I, and I think she—I mean, she—I think she was very pious, and I—I I, would—I actually don't doubt her revelations. Again, it goes back to the fact is like, what am I supposed to do with this now? What do I do with this? How do how do I receive this 
in a way that actually uh, enlargens, enlargens my enlarger, enlargens my faith, grows my heart. Right. Yep. Well, that's where that's where I think now. As so now, as we, we become now, we become in, critical, critical in the positive sense. We're thinking about these things in a way that is beneficial for for us. And um, I mentioned it last week. There's a fantastic film called The Passion of Joan of Arc, 1928. Carl Dreyer. And uh, there's a picture on the bottom of the first page here. See, what we have here, uh, contrasted with those original images of grandeur and inspiration, Carl Dreyer, this is from the opening of The Passion of, of Joan of Arc. It's just, it's, it's text. The real Joan, not in armor, but simple and human, a young woman who died for her country. And we are witnesses to an amazing drama, a young, pious woman confronted by a group of orthodox theologians and powerful judges. What is, what's interesting about this is simple and human. So the whole point of this movie is to drive the humanity of Joan of Arc, not necessarily the holiness or the spirituality of Joan of Arc. And that is, for Carl Dreyer, the point of contact for us to be able to relate to her, which is normal. Yeah, this is 1928 silent film. Sorry, this is one of my favorite films, Kirby. Netflix. Um, you can get it at the Wheaton Public Library. It's only 88 minutes, maybe. It's not streaming, no. But some of our other Carl Dreyer's movies are streaming on Netflix. The Parsons Wife, which I mentioned last week. Vampire with a Y. That's a famous one, too. Um, Days of Wrath, that's another one. Leaves from Satan's Book. Fantastic, isn't it? It's amazing. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I, think, I think most pastors read, I think most pastors do read books, and I do like to read. But uh, I often will watch movies at really awful hours. It's probably why I'm sick. But, but the thing is, though, is that the, about this movie, though, is The Passion of Joan of Arc, is that now, so what we find here is this image. This is the first time that Joan comes on screen. And now look at this. She comes into the screen, and she's uh, framed by the weapons of her captors, we have this monk on the one side who looks down upon her. Not only does the monk look down upon her, but the view of the lens itself is one of looking down on her. So we as, as an audience are, are in, a, in a sense, condescending towards her. Not on purpose, but on the fact is, is that we are in a place of not trusting. We don't really quite trust Joan yet. And we will struggle to trust her throughout the entire film. Carl Dreyer in this movie does some fantastic work about uh, using um, camera angles and cutting away. There's uh, and close-ups. And the whole point, though, is is that oh, so so you you have this woman who's the main character in the woman, and yet on the screen, where is she? She's on the bottom 
right-hand corner of the film. And there's this whole open space for us to watch. And, and so you're kind of forced to fit. You're, you're at, at the beginning of the movie, not only is it a silent movie. Yes. Exactly. Not only is it a silent movie, which already requires us to wonder, am I going to trust myself to this film? Am I going to let myself be engaged in this film? Not only is that, that's like the first hurdle for us to get over. The second hurdle is the way that the movie runs. There's, there's this uh, set at this time. Carl Dreyer built this elaborate set. He actually built a, a church building out of concrete. And he built walls out of concrete and houses out of concrete and cobblestones. And it was very authentic. But yet in the movie itself, we, we, only, we don't see any of it. We don't see a single shot of the whole thing. We see extreme close-ups. And, and if you looked ahead, you'll see some of them that are close. So not only that, but now when we get close, because when you're close to somebody, f- facially speaking, what does that mean? You can hear them, but, yeah, confrontational. I mean, if anybody gets this close oh, to you. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're like, wait a second. Do I want this person in my life or not? I don't know. So what happens is Joan of Arc, right, this is this woman that we're supposed to let her, let her into our lives. But yet, I'm kind of uncomfortable right now watching this film, letting her into my life. So what's fascinating about this movie is that it works on our emotions in a way that, you know, reading a book can't. And it does that on purpose. I mean, this is not just some kind of fluke. This is marvelous movie making because it engages us on an emotional level that we don't normally want to be engaged on. And when it does, we kind of often will shut ourselves off to the movie, disregard it, change the channel, fall asleep, or just say this is dumb. Uh, but the thing is, though, is that if you l- allow yourself into the story, then you begin to wonder, is this something that I can believe in? Now, the strange thing is, is this is what we should do with Holy Scripture. Holy Scripture, if we approach it with openness and honesty, and all the quirks, all the strange Jacob stories, even the strangeness of the Jesus story, we should be confronted in a way that causes us to wonder, do, do I really want this in my life? Am I comfortable with it? Not only with the positive subject matter, Jesus or Jacob, but also with the enemies. And uh, that, that's another thing that this movie does fairly well. Because what we find out, well, I might have even wrote some of this stuff down. Oh, yeah, so this, yeah, right. Th- throughout the film, we will see Joan behaving intelligently and honorably, but not heroically in the typical sense, which is kind of lost on the, the chapter in the book. She's very heroic. But if you read the transcripts, it's a, it's a torment. It's, it's really, it's a tragic thing. The Passion of Joan of Arc is not a French version of Henry V, which is this wonderful, fantastic thing. So, what happens is you need to tell the story of St. Joan in the way of Jesus. So let's actually, let's actually, if you have a Bible handy, I should have handed those out. Mark 14, the passion narrative from the Gospel of Mark is a, is a really interesting passion narrative. And 
when you open yourself to reading the Gospels as unique books, you find out that the differences in the Gospels are something that really challenges us. One of the things about the Gospel of Mark is the passion narrative really stresses Jesus' aloneness. He is utterly alone. The Gospel of Matthew stresses this a little bit. It echoes some of the same things. But what happens in the Gospel of Matthew, to a certain extent, um, uh, allows more people into Jesus' life, although in the negative. Which means that there's more stories of individuals who are questioning Jesus, like Caiaphas and Ananias. In the Gospel of Mark, none of the, none of the people that interview Jesus have names. They're just groups of people, the Pharisees, the scribes. It's a swarm. And this is important because in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus takes on a, well, we have the image of the Gospel. I think Pastor Brzezik talked about that last week or a couple weeks ago in adult Bible study, the, the finials on the lectern. In the Gospel of Mark, it's the lion. It's Jesus, Jesus is an animal in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and what's interesting is the, the, the opponents of Jesus are also animalistic in a scary sense. So you have these swarm, you have a swarm of, of people, yeah, all around Jesus. And Jesus is utterly alone. So when you have, uh, so this is right after the, the Lord's Supper, which is very important for us to realize. So Jesus gives himself to his disciples in the body and blood of himself, in the institution of the Lord's Supper. So it's one of complete communion, other togetherness, back to Eden, right? So if we look at 14, verse 26, and then when they had sung a hymn, they they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them the exact opposite, you will fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they are, they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not, will not deny you. And they all said the same. So Jesus, obviously we know this is untrue, Right? I mean, nobody sticks with Jesus. And uh, what's, you know, in the Gospel of Mark, we don't know if John is, you know, Mary and John aren't, aren't in the Gospel of Mark. That's in, that's in the Gospel of John. So in Mark, he is utterly alone. In the Passion of the Joan of Arc, she is utterly alone. She has nobody with her. What's interesting, though, is through the trial, this actually the monk from that opening scene eventually is the one monk who, at the end of the movie, is with her. And what's historical is that Joan of Arc actually asks for the crucifix, the crucifix to, to like stand before her as she's burned at the stake. Um, and, and this monk is the one who, who holds it up for her. And he, and he calls out to her, you know, well, look here, or hey, hey Joan, look here. And in the movie, it's fantastic. She'll, she'll look, and then she'll cry out the name of Jesus, and then she's dead. But... Um, she's utterly alone, and and so that's the same in the gospel uh, of Jesus, which is a, a very scary place to be, right, for each one of us. But what we find out, though, is that 
if we aren't able to open ourselves to other people's stories or lives in a way that actually actually allows them to be themselves in relation to us, then we are alone. So as we read these stories in the Holy Women, um, we struggle with relating to them, and if we struggle with relating to them, then we are apart. We are alone. We are two alone people relating to each other. So how do, how do we overcome that? Well, that's, that's a great struggle. So the Passion narrative in the Gospel of Mark, we, we actually now have Jesus who prays in Gethsemane. And Jesus in, in, the, in the Garden of Gethsemane is, a, is one of, he's a tragic character in the Gospel of Mark because he's crying. He has no sense of stoicism in the Gospel of Mark. It's almost like he's out of control. He doesn't know what's happening. He's, he's crying out. And, um, and, and, he's, and then he distresses again more his aloneness because he asks Peter, he asks everybody to stay awake. Be with me, please. Desperately be with me. And they don't. So there is a great struggle to relate to others. And, and Peter, James, and John, they fall asleep. They've dismissed now their relationship with Jesus. Because what is, Je- what is happening with Jesus? He's praying. He's crying. He's telling God, I don't want to do this anymore. Or I want, it, I want some other way to do this. And that's unco- I would understand that would be very uncomfortable for Peter, James, and John. So people, you know, this, so people, you enter into people's lives and they have these strange stories and struggles. What are we going to do with this? I don't know what to do with this. So either we open ourselves to them and let them in, or we, we kind of say, I don't know what to, well, we either shut them out, or, or we could actually communicate in a way and say, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Help me. Help me with this. In the Gospel of Mark, a uh, uh, father says, you know, I believe, help my unbelief. So in a certain sense, this is how relationships work, too. Then, obviously, we have the betrayal, where Judas comes, betrays him. Not only Judas, because then that's at the point where the disciples scatter, and he's utterly alone. So the disciples, to a T, in a sense, leave, leave Jesus, betray Jesus. And then now Jesus is through the, uh, starting at verse 53, they led Jesus to the high priest, and the chief priests, the elders, scribes, came together. So now we have here, now we, have, we, don't, we don't have any names. In the other gospel, like we have Caiaphas and Ananias, they're, they're all named in, in the gospels. So, and Peter had followed him at a distance. So Peter is, is the great struggle. He's the one who says, you know, I, I, I do want this person in my life, but I, I don't know what to do with. I'm not, I'm not sure what to do here. So he's in this great struggle of allowing Jesus to be in. And he was uh, sitting with the guards. Okay, so now we have Peter um, in, the, in the court. And then at, first, at verse 56, For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands. In three days I will build another not made with hands. So we have this revelation from Jesus, right? 
that he makes publicly. And now they're trying to use it against him. This, this is the story of the Passion of Joan of Arc. I mean, this is the great thing about the court records that we have from the Passion is that, I mean, from the, the story, the condemnation of, of St. Joan. They ask these kind of questions. You said this, and now they try to use it against her. And so what's the reaction? Because if she says yes, then she's killed. And not only when she says yes, now they can use it against her. Look at what Joan said. Yet even about their testimony did not agree, and the high priest stood up in the midst, uh, in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these, men's, uh, these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's the, the death knell for Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. He actually confesses to who he is. And in, in the story of, of Joan of Arc, she, she remains silent, silent on a lot of them. She tricks him on others, and then when she finally says, yes, she is she's, uh, killed, burned at the stake. So the story of Jesus, uh, and then after that now, he's mocked and beaten. The great thing about the story of Joan of Arc, she was, uh, she was, she was, be- she was tortured. Um, so, I mean, it's just so interesting how... If you're going to retell the story of Joan, I would do it within these things because these are these things that are that echo the story of Jesus. So, yeah, in these passages, we see Jesus struggling with what his father's given him to do. He asks for company, but doesn't receive it. He asks for another way, but doesn't receive it. He's betrayed with a kiss. He's accused by a swarm of religious leaders. He's never given fair questions to answer, so he either answers them in a way that enrages the swarm or doesn't answer them at all. And lastly, he's mocked and beat. So to modern audiences, and I think to us too, raised on films where emotion is conveyed by dialogue and action more than faces, Passion of Joan of Arc is an unsettling experience because we're drawn into a relationship with her where we're not quite sure if we want to know more. Our sympathy is enraged so powerfully, but at the same time, we can't quite relate with Joan's character. The movie does this through visual methods that serve as fragments rather than a stream of life. Thus, the lack of context, not historical but visual, is more realistic and truthful than a nice story. Hence the story of Jesus, too. Anyways, there's a bunch of pictures here. But it's, it's a bit disarming. I think I could show you this scene from the movie, but I just left it at the pictures because Holly, I, I'm just using <laughs> I said, how much would you like to Well, yeah, right. I know, I'm just using <laughs> So what we see in this exchange here is that we're, we're, we're never left with the same point of view. So at first we think we're looking at this uh, monk from Joan's perspective, and then we cut away to her, and she's she is well beside herself. 
put it that way. And then we cut away back to the judge, but we're not looking at the same perspective anymore. We're looking at a side perspective. So where are we in the movie? Well, we're sitting right next to the judge. So where would that place us amongst the accusers? And then when we cut back to Joan's point of view, we, we think it's Joan's point of view, but we're actually much closer. We're like in his face. And that, that's, that's the part where things get, you know, I say, yikes, we don't want this. We want out. Assumptions we were making about knowing how, how sitting there felt to Joan aren't valid. We're not left building a relationship with Joan that says, I know what this is like. Now we cut back to the earlier shot of the point of view of Joan, but with a difference. We are close. Very close. Too close for comfort. Oh, I use the word yuck. <laughs> I would have to say, though, that um, this woman's performance of Falconetti is uh, enrapturing. I mean, I, I just am sucked in. Well, there's no makeup. This is one of the first films that was filmed on this new technology where they didn't have to wear makeup. And that was on purpose. Um, the big thing about this woman is that is her facial, facial expressions. So now, now we're uncomfortably close. Again, now we're very close to, to Joan, clearly seeing things from Joan's perspective. That's a little off. And then the last shot of her here. So through this sequence, we get a glimpse into the struggle that each one of us has when we live in relationship to people. How do we identify with them, with someone whose story is so different than ours? What's the point of contact with another so that we begin to know what it's like to be in someone else's shoes? What's the point of contact? How can we bridge that gap between people? And what the movie says, and I think what the Bible says, is the point of contact is Jesus himself. John chapter 13 says, all people will know that you are my disciples through love. Which means that the only way that we are able to engage in God is through his love. God's love and faithfulness is the only location that one can actually know another. So it's in that space that Jesus creates, St. Paul says, in Christ, which would be our baptismal reality that we are able to, to actually engage in another person, uh, that we're able to know someone. And when I say know, I mean like in the biblical sense, like uh, emotionally, physically, soul-wise. And that, that's, a, that's a very peculiar thing, but the, one of the great things is that this movie actually achieves this. I, I think it utterly achieves this. And what's great is it uses the story of Joan of Arc um, actually, we can watch this uh, scene that cuts back and forth. It's a silent movie, but there is a score, so there is music, so it does engage us on on that kind of level. It's very pretty. It'll just take me one second here. Now, I uh, you can also watch the whole movie if you want on YouTube. Quality's a little less. and I, I, I'm not sure if it's legal, but... It's on there. 
Um, so this is the trial. This is about halfway through the movie. And the uh, well, it's funny because you don't actually have any context. I have no idea who this is. It's just one of the guys. No, the only person that you know in the movie is Joan. The only person that's named is Joan, and that's on purpose. Well, again, that's, that's why I use the Gospel of Mark as a passion narrative to tell the story of Joan, is because in the Gospel of Mark, only Jesus is mentioned, I mean by name. So you don't know exactly who this is, but obviously he's one of the religious leaders, and he does have a main part. I mean, he talks often. He's not the scariest, guys. Oh, he's very condescending right now. He'll say, we all know that, well, you'll read it. So what's interesting is, is that through, this is the diabolical nature of this group, is that they are angry and they yell at people, and then, and then they have these, these kind of like, you know, we're okay, I have sympathy for you. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like the devil. It's like Satan in, in telling Jesus, you're hungry. You're, come on, let's make this stone into a piece of bread. So, uh, you know, so that's the scene right there. Is that the movie does, you know, what I forgot to mention too, though, is that he said, who tricked you, who turned your head? And that's the part where we go back to him and our head's turned. It's turned from the side. So, um, yeah, so now we're, we're, in this, we're in this really strange place because at this point now, he, uh, to abjure, meaning like, I think she's ready to confess. So we're in this moment now where, like, what to do, where to go, where to see things. So how, how are we going to do this? How are we going to get through this trial? Because she knows, she's already articulated by this point in the movie that she has seen these things, and the point of what's going on is the salvation of her soul. God has promised her a great victory and deliverance. And she hasn't really figured out what that means. The judges say, so you're going to be delivered from prison. She has an answer. And then they'll ask it again, and she says yes. And that just enrages them. But at that point, she knows exactly what that means. She's going to die. You can already tell in her, voice, her face, too, right? There's a moment of kind of crisis, and then there's a moment of serenity which is uh, kind of the second picture, or the last picture of her in your, your handout. That's the, that's the one great thing, too, though, is that in this movie, in order to wash these faces in a way that just doesn't make you uncomfortable, you actually have to be completely open to it. Because once you're open to it, you see the differences and what it communicates. It speaks volumes. One of my favorite scenes in the, in the film is when she's initially asked about St. Michael. And her face, at first she's struggling because she knows she's trying to be tricked. And then there's a slight grin and a, and a head just, just off to the side. And she goes back to that moment when her and St. Michael were together. And it's like, it, it's like she's not there anymore. She's at that point. And now she's wondering... Well, how can you communicate that to people? How can you tell, you know, these men about your experience with something that's almost incommunicable? So it's, anyways, 
So that whole scene right there, though, this happens throughout the movie, and that happens throughout the story. That really helps us to disengage how we normally approach people, and either we're going to shut ourselves off or open ourselves up to it. And, you know, what happens next is that she doesn't sign the letter. She comes to a revelation that um, these people are workers of Satan now, and they're trying to disengage her from her calling. Well, exactly. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Crazy haircut, yeah. Right. Well, exactly. So now, so, but that's that's where that's where I think now that's where we always have to throw ourselves back on Jesus. So that's the point of, of talking about the passion of Joan of Arc. Is that what's happening to Jesus at this time? And we we all are we don't struggle through the fact that the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees are religious leaders, and there's no reason for us to think that they're not trying to be faithful. They're, they're, they're actually trying to be faithful. Now, in this movie, though, like Kirby said, I mean, you, they have a different agenda going on. But as we put ourselves into the story of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Mark again, Gospel, Jesus isn't really sure, oh, I shouldn't say that, he struggles with who God has called him to be. That's maybe hard for us to understand because we think Jesus is the Son of God. He's the divine. He's divine. But yet, in order to perfect human nature, or humanity, I should say, you know, he had to die a real death. And all that comes with it. What's, you know, that's unsettling. So, anyways, so, so that, yeah, no, so now Joan, confronted by religious leaders, and actually, uh, just before the scene, that's interesting that you said that, this man comes up and says, Are you, do you think you're wiser than all these faithful men? And she says, no. And they're like, oh, perfect. And then she says, I, but God's wiser than any of us, which, you know, tricks them because she's following God, even though she's wise, and they're wiser than her. Holly. Right. How does the plan unfold? Right. Right. Take care of it. Yep. There you go. Hey, holy smokes. And I did torture Holly through this video one time, I think. I think she might have fallen asleep, though. I, I, no, I understand. Did anybody, I don't know, I asked that last week. I don't think. Martha, did you go to The Sacrifice? Whether that movie I showed at Wheaton College? You were there. Oh, Donna, you were there too. That was, that was, what, that was another opportunity where Pastor Nelson could have really done well and he failed miserably. Mainly because I love these films and I'm so enraptured by them. Uh, but not everybody else. Anyways. Okay, yeah, no, that's right. So, so Jesus' story in the Gospel of Mark, if we read it, if we approach the biblical text with an open heart and open mind, then we see these things that maybe we didn't see there before. So, which I think is different. So actually, I think I wrote this down. Yeah, different than perhaps other martyrdom stories, Joan's destruction slash de deliverance doesn't bring us pleasure. That's the other thing, too, is as we read these stories, it's kind of strange that 
when we read about someone dying, that does give us pleasure. Not pleasure in the, you know, like eating a Twinkie sense, but like, you know, pleasure in the sense that it, it, it does give us some kind of joy. It's kind of strange. But rather, its realism actually takes us back and causes us to do something, which means count the cost. First, count the cost of wanting to watch this movie. Will we revisit this story? Second, count the cost of following her story. Would we really want to follow what she does? Is she really that? I mean, do we want to be like her? Um, third, the cost of following... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I skipped that thing. Second, the cost of wanting us to relate to Joan. Can we actually look at her with dignity? And then following her story, do we want to be her? When you answer these questions, you're answering them with respect to Jesus, since her story follows Jesus' so closely, hence the title, The Passion of Joan of Arc. I would venture to say that we can't understand what she's going through, but we're not really implicated or invited to judge her. So what's left? I would suggest the only thing the film teaches is, is compassion. Now we're at the point of, uh, in, in, in Jesus' story, is that we're not sure what to do with it, but we're at a point of compassion, and that's in the older sense of the word, meaning like long-suffering, suffering along with. Here's Joan at her lowest point. Okay, so now I should have, that's a, another paragraph there. So Joan's at her lowest point after she signed an aberration saying, abjuration. She does not understand. She doesn't understand it. She can't read. So all we know is that she just wants the pain to stop, and she signs it. Denied that her visions were divinely inspired and been sentenced to life in prison. Um, that's wrong. I don't know why I wrote that. Uh, one would think that she was welcomed into the church, but she still was going to be burned. Uh, one would think that her torments were over, but Dreyer cuts from her sentencing directly to this scene, which is, is that's a very strange reality. You're watching this, and she... They make this announcement in public to everybody saying, Joan, it's this big, long thing, big ceremony, and, but Joan's still inside the prison. Everyone's like, what? You know, a lot of people don't believe what's happening. And then he cuts back, and you see her getting her hair cut. And that's real cut. It's a great story where she, uh, they filmed the, the, the movie in sequence, so this is at the end. So uh, there's a story that she always tried to convince the director to not have her hair cut <laughs> by the, that part of the movie, but it was. So it's impossible to watch this penultimate humiliation without wanting to do something, anything, to stop it. And at this point in the movie, you are, I mean, it's, it's hard to, like, not feel something. The passion of Joan of Arc cuts to the quick of what is to be human, exactly what exactly we have in common with Joan, despite the fact that her experiences are so incommunicable. We're sinners in need of salvation from a God who can associate, can relate to us even in a moment of torment. So the only way that we can relate to her is through Jesus. Um, and although we may wish to stop it, we can't grasp it. The passion of the Joan of Arc is the rarest of films. Because it's awesome. The kind whose violence does not desensitize, desensitize, but instead raises sensitivity to an unbearable pitch. Oh, I was supposed to take that out. 
You can disregard the last half of that paragraph because that's that's a past what we talked about. Rachel. Yes. Yeah, it's it's a fat it's a, it's a uh, I do have the last little part because at the end after after she she says, you know, I lied and all this stuff is true, they they're like, okay, we're going to have to burn you. And she uh, she uh, the monk hears her confession. She receives the sacrament. And that's my favorite scene is after she receives the sacrament with her head you know, head shaved, and they show her praying, and she's looking up to heaven in complete contentness. And in the back is this window that has the cross, so it's like this great image of, of her. And then they, they march her out to die, and she uh, burns, and then the man comes with the crucifix, and they show her, and the, all the other credits in the movie are in the center of the, the screen, but when she says Jesus, it's down on the lower right-hand side. So it's the last waning, yeah, subtitles. It's the last waning statement as she literally falls, you know, dies. So it's very, it's very powerful. But the, yeah, this I did write that down. There's this, uh, I, got the, I got this quote from a book. Um, that's why I wanted to take it out because I couldn't remember where it's from. But she, the only time where, like, they, they do wide shots, when she's burning, we're not in her face anymore. So the movie actually allows us to keep this distance. And that's, the, that's kind of the, yeah, yeah, the grace that's given to us. And so is the story of Jesus. So anyways, I, uh, it's a great movie. You should watch it. You really should. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Did they? Yeah, right. Absolutely. That's great. That's perfect. That's exactly right. Yeah, right. Yep. That's, that's great. In fact, uh, well, yeah, that's the benefit of going to the historical spots is that we re- it's grounded in reality now. It's not the, it's not the myth. Yeah. Anyways, if you want to watch more of the scenes, I do, I do have one of the final scenes queued up. So, Anyways, blessings to everybody. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Nice. Yeah, we're not meeting next Friday, and Martha said... Got any time to hang out? We can go down to Christmas sharing and help work. <laughs>